And for those of you who are joining us for the first time, why are we calling the series Relation Slips? Well, every single one of us are connected via this web of relationships. And then, of course, there's our family, there's our friends, and there's our, you know, all the kind of fake friends we've got on social media. But the point is, we've got this entire web of relationships. But as you know, sometimes something goes wrong, the relationship slips, and somebody gets hurt. And we've realized that the Bible has a lot to say about relationships. But the Bible also has a lot to say about relation slips. About how to deal with the times and moments in our relationships. Whether it's marriage, friendship, family, and things go wrong. God is growing us. God is challenging us. I believe God is maturing us by how we choose to respond in these moments. So in week one, in case you've missed it, I really encourage you guys. Relationships are so important that if you've missed the last few weeks, go back, catch up. Week one, we spoke about the fact that every time we're offended doesn't necessarily mean it's worth being offended. That we live in this hyper-offended culture. And we just walk around with the emotional sunburn, getting offended by everything and everyone, and we're just destroying relationships around us. And sometimes, remember the challenges, sometimes it is actually to our glory. It is a glorious thing. It is a mature thing. It shows the evidence of God's grace in our lives when we can get to that point where we can overlook some of these offenses. That's a sign of maturity, not immaturity. So that was week one. In week two, we spoke about the fact that at some stage, if we're going to deal with these slips in our relationships, we need to have a conversation. And instead of going out onto social media or getting these teams against one another or telling everyone else, we need to learn how to go to the person that we've got the problem with and have a critical conversation. And again, I believe that God is maturing us in that But today we're going to be talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Specifically to understand how we've been forgiven in order that we can go out and forgive. Because at the heart of the gospel, that's what the cross is. Is that God forgave us. The heart of the gospel is forgiveness. And therefore we need to learn how to live that out. Now, the reason why we need to forgive anything is because in our relationship, something's gone wrong, there's been an offense. We've been talking about this all uh, the last few weeks. There's been an offense. Something has gone wrong. All right? And therefore, um, because there's been an offense, there's this break in the relationship, and we talk about conflict. Something uh, was done to you. Something was taken from you. Somebody said something to you. You went onto social media. All your friends were having a good time and they didn't invite you. There's been this offense. And some of these offenses are, as we said, offenses that we really need to learn to overlook. Some of these offenses are offenses that actually we need to learn to have critical conversations about, but they're kind of in the scale of a bit smaller. And I understand that sitting here this morning, some of us have a breakdown in a relationship that have to do with like what seems like insurmountable pain, incredible amounts of pain, incredible amounts of hurt, and incredible amounts of anger. And this is why we need to talk about forgiveness, to figure out how to deal with this. Now, when we talk about conflicts in marriage counseling, I've heard this in a number of different ways, but uh, I've been told there's two kinds of people in this world, and maybe you'll very quickly identify yourself. There's rhinos and there's porcupines. 
So rhinos, rhinos love conflict. Maybe they don't love it, but they're happy with conflict. They're just so totally happy to dive straight in. And as they come in, man, they make a big fat mess. Everyone gets injured in the process. That's a rhino. We would call that aggressive. Then on the other side, we've got passive aggressive. Those are the porcupines. I tend to be on that side of things. All right, and passive-aggressive people are conflict-averse porcupines. They think, oh, the best way to deal with conflict is to run away and hide. But in our running away and hiding, we stick our heads into the hole. We think because we can't see the big fat mess behind us that everything's okay, but we're being passive-aggressive. And in our sulking and in our hiding and in our avoidance, people still get hurt. Now, I don't know if you identify as a runner and you're like, well, that's me. And I don't know if you identify as a porcupine and that's me. In fact, let's just get this ball rolling. Uh, turn to the person next to you and tell them, you are a rhino. No, no, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> a, far, a far better angle to take is I am a, all right, I am a. You see, somehow I came to this conclusion I came to the conclusion that conflict is a bad thing. And the best thing to do with conflict is to sweep it under the carpet. And then you sweep the next one under the carpet. And then the next one under the carpet. And eventually there's this growing pile of conflicts under the carpet. And everyone can see it. And everyone knows it's there. Everyone's falling over each other trying to avoid this thing that's under the carpet. I somehow concluded that. I don't know where I got it from. Maybe I do, but... uh, So I thought, well, if you're in a relationship, if you're in a marriage with conflict, that's a bad thing. And if you're in a friendship with conflict, that's a bad thing. Or if you're in a team where there's conflict, that's a bad thing. Whereas what scientific studies have shown is that healthy relationships, be they marriage, friendships, relational teams, healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships have pretty much the same amount of conflict on average. It's what you do with the conflict that sets the healthy from the unhealthy. So if you're like me and you're conflict averse and somehow you're concluding that conflict equals bad, we need to rewire ourselves, acknowledge the conflict and figure out, well, what am I going to do for this relationship in spite of the conflict? Maybe because of the conflict. I heard somebody say that conflict is the price we pay for intimacy. Think about it. Because when there's conflict, the masks come off. You say the things that you really want to say. And I don't just mean the hurtful things. I mean, you start saying, but I actually really love you. I really want this relationship to thrive. And because of the conflict, you pay that price and you gain intimacy. And even oaks, even dude relationships can have intimacy. I'm not talking about hugs and cuddles and pillow fights. Um, But your relationship can go to a deeper level. I really am not saying hugs and bunnies and yeah. So we need to learn how to deal with these offenses, these moments of conflict in our relationships, how to have these critical conversations. To go back to last week, that our conversations start with grace, end with grace, are saturated with grace in between. In other words, what God gives. How is God supplying what he gives in this moment of conflict? We need to rely on that more than we do, right? 
You see, when there's an offense, there's, a, there's actually a bit of a transaction. We may use different words for it. But you know, when things are cool, we feel like we're on some sort of even playing field. I'm not saying this is how we should always think about it, but I think on average it's how we do think about it. We're on, equal, we're on an equal playing field and things are equal. So I can relate to you and you can relate to me. But when there's conflict, when there's an offense, there's been a transaction. There's been a negative transaction. There's been a withdrawal from the relationship and it becomes one-sided. Meaning, someone takes from me. Someone takes from me. Maybe it's dignity. Maybe it's my self-worth by saying something about me to somebody else. Maybe someone takes from me my time by robbing of our relationship, by robbing of my joy. The negative transaction has been my joy. Maybe somebody has actually taken physically from you. They've stolen money from you. They've cheated you out of something. They've promised they will pay you back, but they haven't. There's been this negative transaction. And the question is, in light of this, let's call it debt from now on. In light of this debt in our relationship, how do we move forward? Maybe you feel like, man, I've tried to have critical conversations. And it just seems like we talk and talk and talk and get nowhere. And that's what today is about. Because forgiveness is allowing us to deal with that debt. How to eliminate that and therefore clear the path for something new in our relationship. So, we've been kind of rooted in the tiny little gem, the book of Philemon, or Philemon, I don't really know, okay, but um, <laughs> in the New Testament, kind of towards the end, if you've got a Bible like this, you're going to start at Revelation, start paging backwards, um, you're going to get through the next big book, which is Hebrews, and if you start hitting all the books that start with T, Titus, Timothys, Thessalonians, you've gone too far, just sandwiched between all the T books and Hebrews is the book of Philemon. It's a one-pager, so easy to miss. Otherwise, turn on your device, find it alphabetically, and you'll be with us. And just to remind you, why are we using this book of Philemon? All right, it's the story about a man named Philemon. He was a wealthy man. He was a landowner. He was also, he had a large family. He had a large number of slaves. And in case you're like, oh, slave, tick, context. Uh, Again, I'm not going to repeat what I said last week, but first century slavery was very different to our sort of 18th, 19th century conceptions of slavery. So just to kind of understand that a little bit. Um, But Philemon has his family. He's got a church in his home, probably populated largely by a few friends, a few neighbors. His family and his slaves would have been part of this church. There's a man who worked for him. His name was Onesimus. Onesimus would have been somehow a regular part of Philemon's life and maybe even part of the church. But at some point, there was an offense. We don't know exactly what the offense was, but Onesimus runs away. Either the offense was he stole things and then ran, or just on his way out, just despite Philemon, he took some things with him and he ran away to Rome. And just the way God works, this runaway slave, he finds himself in Rome and somehow he finds the apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul leads Onesimus to genuine faith in Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, I'm going to make a priority, the reconciliation of this relationship. So Onesimus, I'm going to send you back to Philemon. Not to get justice, not to get thrown into prison, but to restore your relationship, not just to previous levels, which was master-slave, but to higher levels, brothers in Christ. That's my goal for you guys. So Nesimus, I'm sending you home with this letter for Philemon. 
So we're going to read on from verse 17 to 21, see how the story develops. So this is how it goes. So if you consider me a partner, right to Philemon, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand as opposed to a scribe. This is how passionate he feels about this. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you'll do even more than I ask. So I just want to kind of unpack this a little bit for us. Uh, and I think we're going to be taught along the way. So verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. I think one of the reasons why we really struggle to forgive is that we don't even have the power in our imagination to see the reconciliation of the relationships that we're tied into. And Paul appeals to his imagination here. He says, listen, Philemon, I want you just to imagine for a second how you feel about Onesimus. And if he had to walk in through your front door, what are those natural feelings of anger? What are those natural feelings of hurt or resentment or justice? He must pay me back. And then maybe after we've, you know, he's paid me back and after he's groveled, then maybe we can talk about forgiveness. Okay, now you've got that in your mind? Now, Philemon, I want you to imagine how you'd welcome me. You see me coming through the fence gates, right? And you see me, you call all your friends, you call your family, you open up your fridge, you pour me something cold to drink, you create a meal, right? Now you've got that in your imagination. Now, Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus like that. I, I can imagine that being such a struggle for Philemon. But now, let's just play that in our own minds. Think about the person who has offended you or maybe the person who's at the top of that pile for now. And just imagine you here, ding dong. I mean, I know we don't really do this anymore. But you know, someone's at your front door, ding dong, and you look in and it's this person. This person you've been avoiding at church. This person you've unfriended on social media and there they are and you've dreamt about them and all the justice you're going to have. Just imagine those feelings of hurt and anger and injustice. Now press pause on that. And now imagine the person you really want to see coming through the front door. I hope for most of you, it's your husband or your wife. All right, there's pleasant feelings of joy and happiness when you see them come home. Maybe it's your kids when they get out the car and they run up to you. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe it's a friend from overseas, just like Paul and Philemon. You haven't seen them for months, maybe years, and you hear this doorbell ring, and there they are. Just imagine those feelings. Paul says, listen. Part of the evidence that you have understood grace and forgiveness is, is going to be evidenced in the fact that you'll be able to welcome the second person, sorry, the first person, like the second. Now, I do want to say now, we'll talk more about this next week. Sometimes in some of the offenses, that is not a good idea, especially where there's been violence, sexual violence, those kinds of things. Sometimes we can forgive without necessarily reconciling. That's next week. We'll talk more about that. But those are probably few and far between. In most of our offenses and our relation slips, Paul is saying, you need to get to the point where even in your imagination, you can conceive it's possible. 
Because as I was talking through the scenario with most of you, you're sitting there thinking about how angry and unjust you feel about person A. You think about person B. You had all these wonderful feelings of, you know, puppies and rainbows. And then I said, now you need to welcome person A like person B. And your brain went, Ugh. like, not possible. We truly do not believe it's possible, so we don't even try. See, we live in a world of do what you feel. Now, I mean, the Bible would say that's very bad advice. Most psychologists, be they Christian or otherwise, would also say that's bad advice because our feelings are so temporary, they're so fickle. But nonetheless, we live by that. Do what you feel. And so as we see this person, we feel the anger as we think about this person or see them on social media or see them at church or see them at work, we have these feelings that come up within us. And because we aren't able to overcome those feelings, because we don't have a bigger imagination, because we haven't understood grace, we haven't understood forgiveness, we aren't able to choose anything else. So we simply respond to these feelings of anger and hurt. And even if we do somehow manage to have a critical conversation last week, All that comes out is the hurt and the pain and the anger and it stops there. And I believe Paul is wanting to say to you guys, it is possible. And somehow in your mind's eye, you need to start believing it is possible. Which is why we spoke about grace last week. Only what God can supply in these difficult situations. So let's see how this becomes possible. Well, verse 18 starts to give us a clue here. Paul says to Philemon, If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Who does Philemon want to charge it to? Anesimus. You're the one who stole from me. When you ran away, we don't know how long it was, a few days, a few weeks, a few months. I had to find somebody else. I had to pay somebody else for your job. Ah, I want to make you pay. And again, then once you've paid me off and you've groveled, then maybe we can talk about forgiveness. And Paul says, listen, Philemon, I know this withdrawal, this debt. I know that you're not going to be able to even think about forgiveness until the debt has been paid for. So let me get that out the way. Let me remove the excuse of the debt. And now you guys can start talking about forgiveness. There's a scene in, uh, it's become a movie, but it was a play originally called, uh, I'm going to try to say it probably, uh, probably. <laughs> yeah, this is why I like work really hard in my preparation. Um, but it's, it's the play, Les Miserables. Uh, uh, is that right? Yes? No? Okay. All right? Less miserables, uh, lay miserables, everything in between. I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but there's a scene where this bishop of this town, he takes in a man who was doing hard labor for 19 years. What was his crime? Stealing a loaf of bread. All right? So he takes this man, this convicted villain, into his house, wants to show him grace and forgiveness, gives him a meal, goes to bed. This man wakes up in the middle of the night, takes all this bishop's silverware and runs away. The next morning, this police officer or a brigadier sees him and he just looks dodgy. So he follows him up, opens his bag and there's all the silverware. Where did you get this from? Okay, I got it from the bishop. All right, we're going to the bishop right now. So knock, 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 opens up the door. There's the man who has just stolen all my silverware. 
And obviously the question is, how is this man going to respond? And the other question is, how would you have responded? You know what the bishop does? Oh, there you are. Okay, I'm paraphrasing. Oh, there you are. You forgot the candlesticks. He goes inside, <laughs> takes out the silver candlesticks and says, here we go. Go on your way. I mean, this police officer's jaws just on the ground. This thief, his jaws on the ground. What's just happened? See, the story of this bishop and this thief and the story of Onesimus and Philemon are not about Onesimus and Philemon and Philemon and the thief, sorry, and the bishop and the thief. The story is about Jesus. The story is about Jesus who says, here's a debt and I'm going to pay it and I'm going to go above and beyond I am going to settle that account with the cost of my own life and the justice that was due to you is on me and the freedom because of the life that I've lived, I'm going to give to you. I just hope that helps your imagination to realize that forgiveness and grace properly applied is probably the most powerful thing to change somebody's life. Imagine Philemon and the person he was, sorry, imagine Onesimus and the person he was after this affair. He comes home. He comes home because Paul's kind of, you know, you've got to go and do this, buddy. He's got a letter in his hand that he's hoping is really going to do something to change this man's heart. He comes home, he's expecting justice. He's maybe expecting a physical beating. He's expecting to grovel. He's expecting to be treated like absolute trash and like the thief that he was. Imagine how transformative it was when Philemon comes to him and welcomes him like a brother. And in that moment, in case again you're still concerned about slavery, you see how the gospel just overturned slavery in that home right there. And Nesimus became a brother to this man. Think about that thief. Think how that would have changed him for the rest of his life. And if you watch how that movie goes, we know that it does. Because he was forgiven. And somebody else paid the debts. And somebody else, it cost them the injustice. And the freedom was given to him. The most powerful thing to do in a relationship is to forgive in this way. In week one of the series, again, we spoke about, uh, I wanted to show you how important it was to Paul to deal with these slips in our relationships. Because what do we do? Ugh, we just like, shrug it off. We don't deal with it. Or we, again, we unfriend them. Or we go to another church. Or we, you know, move jobs. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. I'm going to make this a priority. And what I want to do this morning is sort of increase the importance and increase the, the urgency of our relationships that have gone wrong. Make it of highest priority for us. See how the gospel does this to us. Forgiveness, reconciliation is not an optional extra. This is not something you throw into Christianity when you've got some spare time. This is at the heart of the gospel. Some people ask, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? The answer is very easy to understand. It's very difficult to do. The answer is quite simply this. Whatever Jesus did for you, do for others. You're like, I just heard, Yo, I mean, gulp. I mean, if you did that, if you lived your life, everything Jesus did for you, you do for others, you will fulfill everything in the Old and the New Testament. 
easy to understand, hard to do. But if we think about the grace that we've received when God has forgiven us, we somehow separate, yay, God's forgiven me, but I don't need to give forgiveness to others. And I want to show you this morning how those are intertwined and we actually cannot separate them. Uh, We've spoken a lot in this church about the Lord's Prayer. I love the Lord's Prayer. I love how it challenges our hearts and our presuppositions. Uh, One of the saddest things for me is that we've learned how to say the Lord's Prayer without learning to pray the Lord's Prayer. Most people in this room can say it off by heart while missing the beauty and the power of it. There's a line in the middle. Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we go, Lord, forgive us our trespasses. I'm I'm so grateful for Jesus. I'm so grateful for the forgiveness that I've received. Amen. Notice it's not, Lord, forgive us our trespasses and kind of sort of help me forgive other people. No, no, no. Forgive us our trespasses as you forgive those who have transgressed against you. There's this continuation between the vertical and the horizontal that is inseparable. In fact, in the book of Matthew, Jesus continues, just after he's taught the Lord's Prayer, he says this, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. And some of you are like, what? I thought grace was free. I thought there was nothing that I needed to do to earn my forgiveness. And often, again, like we, our brains don't know how, what to do with this verse. So how do we understand God has just taught us grace, He's taught us the gospel, and now He's teaching us that if we do not forgive people, we will not be forgiven. So what's going on here? See, good fruit does not make a good tree. You can take a bad tree, and you can buy some good apples from Willie's and staple them onto the tree. It doesn't make it a good tree. But the idea is, if you are a good tree, you naturally produce good fruits. That happens naturally. And the whole gospel understanding is this. If you are a genuine, transformed Christian, you become a good tree. What's going to start happening in your life is you're going to start bearing good fruit. Now, if there's no fruit, we need to start asking questions about the tree. So the point is this. If I am a transformed tree, if I am forgiven and I get it, one of the fruits of my life is my ability to forgive others. Because forgiven people forgive people. But the corollary of that is also true. People who somehow think, well, of course God forgave me because I'm such a wonderful person. I deserve forgiveness. So deserved forgiveness means you're going to make other people deserve your forgiveness. Maybe you aren't sure if other people need to be forgiven. Maybe you aren't sure that you're forgiven. However you understand your relationship to God, you're going to play that out to others. There's a story that I've told so many times, but just before I do that, this quote by C.S. Lewis, absolutely wonderful. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. 
And the more that makes sense to us, the more we'll have capacity to forgive. One of the stories, I've, I've used the story a number of times in church. It's found in Matthew 18. I'm not going to read it for you. Uh, you can go read it for yourself. I'm just going to kind of narrate through it. So there's a man who owes a king in a land. Uh, what amounts to, they use kind of ancient monetary terms, but what amounts to literally millions of dollars. So he goes to this king saying, here's this debt. I cannot pay it. Please have mercy on me. The king looks at him and has mercy on him. Pause. See what happened there? The money didn't magically reappear in the king's bank account. Somebody still had to pay the debts. In this case, the king paid the debts. When he forgave the man, unpaused, and said, okay, you can go free. So what that guy does, he's just been forgiven millions of dollars worth of debt. He goes outside, sees a guy who owes him a Coke and starts throttling him. At which stage, you and I are reading the story saying, what an idiot. Dude, if you understood this, if you truly understood, maybe you didn't do maths at school, but if you truly understood that you owed this guy millions of dollars and by right you should have been thrown into prison for that, and he just kind of blank things out for you. You going outside and you're throttling this dude for 10 bucks. You're an idiot. You, you clearly don't get it. And we close our Bibles. And get on with life. See, this story is not about this other guy who's an idiot. This story is about me who's an idiot. That I don't always get the side of things. I don't always get how I've been forgiven. I don't always get this debt that was between me and God. I think I've been offended. And again, some of us have been offended in such painful, difficult ways, I cannot even begin to understand. But what the Bible tries to say is not diminish that pain, but just try and increase our understanding of how we've offended God. And if you want to try and understand, just look at the debt he paid. He sent his son to die on our behalf. It's not just writing a check. And the more I understand how I've been forgiven, the more I understand this side of the equation, the more I am empowered to forgive those who have offended me. See, when we begin to realize that we are, in Christ, forgiveness millionaires, I'm empowered to forgive those who have a debt against me. It's just, here's what I pray from time to time. When I think about, I regularly think about the story in Matthew 18. I say, Lord, I don't always get it. Help me get it. Not just with my brain, because my brain sees figures, but my heart still doesn't get it. Because I still hold things against people that I shouldn't be. So Lord, not just help me deal with the offense in me and this other person. Help me get this. Help me get it. Really, really get it. And to be honest, only God can do that. Only God can open up the eyes of my heart to understand that. So, in our remaining time together, we're going to talk about a couple of practical handles when it comes to forgiveness. Um, just to let you know on the front end, I'm not going to be able to cover the entire kind of landscape of forgiveness, what it means, how to practically think about it. Um, uh, I'll definitely be leaving some big things out uh, just because we don't have time. So afterwards, if you've got time, more questions, we'd love to engage with you, love to pray with you about these things. But here are some practical handles for us to move into acting out of this forgiveness. Number one, Go from forgiveness, not for forgiveness. 
What does that mean? This actually came up in our life group discussion this last week. See, I, I think one of the fallacies we have is, I will forgive when I start feeling wonderful feelings for this person. Until then, I want to keep my mouth shut, which is a total fallacy because how long does that take? In fact, does that ever work? In fact, what generally happens, oh, I'm going to forgive when I feel like in my heart and in my emotions I've forgiven this person. What tends to happen, those emotions just get darker and deeper, right? So how do we break that cycle? Well, we act in faith. Because if I'm going to wait until I feel like there's forgiveness in my heart, you will wait forever. That's not faith. Our Christian walk is the life of faith. So how do we act in faith? You see, faith and forgiving people starts with forgiveness. It understands what I've just said, that I've been forgiven. And because I understand that I've been forgiven, I start forgiving. I ask God for supernatural ability to forgive. I start praying for this person even if I don't feel like it. Even if at that moment they actually feel like my enemy. The Bible even challenges me there and says pray for your enemies and bless those who persecute you. God, but I can't. Well, that's why we need grace. That's why we need what only he can give and he can supply. And then I walk, meaning... Then I act and then I do. Forgive first. And the feelings follow. See, sometimes again, we start a conversation in our minds like, okay, fine, we're going to have this critical conversation. And if the conversation goes well, then we can forgive. Notice Paul says to Philemon, no, get the forgiveness right stuff, first, uh, stuff right first. Then when you see this man, you'll be able to forgive him. Welcome him like you would welcome me. Forgive first. Feelings follow. Start with forgiveness. Otherwise, all we're doing is bringing our unfiltered anger, our unfiltered hurts. God hasn't dealt with our hearts yet. And that's not starting with grace. So we don't engage in the conversation. And only things go, well, then I'll forgive. That's not what God did for us. God didn't wait to feel happy, fluffy feelings before he climbed onto a cross for us. He acted knowing that this would bring reconciliation. Timothy Keller says, forgiveness must be granted before it can be felt. This is something we choose. We start with forgiveness. Number two, forgiveness is an identity issue. Kind of related to the first point, bless you. But being a Christian means that whatever your previous identity was, for some of us, our identity is wrapped up in our looks. For some of us, our identity is wrapped up in our finances, positively or negatively. For some of us, our identity is wrapped up in our performance, and it feels like the rest of our day is trying to untangle ourselves from that. But for some of us, our identity is wrapped up in our pain. And becoming a Christian means I receive a new identity. We sang the song this morning, I am, not how I feel, I am not what others say about me. I am not what I think about me. I am who you say I am. And that applies to all of life. 
And this can be said a number of ways. Who are you when you become a Christian? Well, you were an enemy. You were wrapped up in your finances. You were wrapped up in your esteem. You were wrapped up in your looks. You were wrapped up in your performance. You were wrapped up in your pain. Not that any of those things, God wants to deal with those. And sometimes God blesses us in those areas of life. But your new identity is from now, you are a son. From now on, you are a child. From now on, you're a daughter. And in this message, from now on, you are a forgiven one. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm a forgiven one. When I walk around and I go to work and I face a tough marriage or a tough friendship or a tough work situation, I walk in as one who is on a clean slate. I am, I am a forgiven one. And I understand that for some people, the first thing they think when they wake up in the morning is I am an injured one. I'm a hurt one. I'm an offended one. Again, I don't want to diminish some of your painful stories. And while God does want to deal with your pain, And while God does want to deal with your hurts, and while God does want to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation, this is not something He wants from you. This is something He wants for you. And one of the biggest ways He overturns this debt in your heart is by declaring over you, from now on, you're a forgiven one. Yes, you've been hurt, but that's not your identity anymore. And again, guys, I sometimes feel so helpless when I stand up here because my words cannot make you feel that. My words cannot transform the innermost part of your being. Only God can do that. And so I pray that he does. And I invite you to pray that he does. Bring you to that place where you wake up in the morning. And your identity is, I'm loved. And I'm a forgiven one. And yes, I hurt. That's not my identity. Number three, forgiveness is not a one-time thing. Jesus was teaching on forgiveness and uh, afterwards I love Peter because Peter asks the kind of questions that we would like to ask. So Peter goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, okay, I get you. We need to be forgiving. But uh, okay, someone sins against me. How many times do I need to forgive this person? And Peter, I think he goes to like the maximum number. So seven times? I mean, most of us don't even forgive seven times. And Jesus responds by saying, no, 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 70 times seven times. Now, that doesn't mean 490 times. My dad literally knew of a wife who had a little black book. And when her husband had literally sinned against her 490 times, on the 491st time, she divorced him. Because the Bible says so. Later on, the Bible says love does not keep a record of wrongs. But anyway. So the way I used to think about it, and I think it still applies, is so I'm in a friendship, I'm in a relationship, and someone hurts me, and I forgive them. And then tomorrow they hurt me again in a different way and I forgive them for that. And then two weeks time they hurt me again. I forgive them for that again. And basically when Jesus says 70 times 7, that's just like a Hebrew way of saying infinite forgiveness. But God, I don't have infinite forgiveness exactly because He does, which is why we need His grace and what only He gives. 
But something I've started to realize about life is that sometimes that 70 times 7 is not going to be forgiving this one person for 490 different things. Sometimes it's for the same thing. And I don't just mean them committing the same sin again. But okay, wow, you have transgressed me so bad. You've hurt from me. You've taken from me. And I eventually get to a point where I forgive you. And then I wake up tomorrow and I'm hurting again. I forgive you again. And the next morning I wake up and I actually feel okay. I actually feel like maybe a bit of compassion for this person. But then they say something else to irritate me. And all this other previous hurt comes up again. And I choose to forgive you again. And then two weeks go by and everything's right as rain. Then something else happens. And I forgive you again. I think some of us think that, oh, I I thought I'd forgiven this person. Is there something wrong with me? No, there's not something wrong with you. Maybe these words will help you. We need a posture of forgiveness so that I am a forgiving one because I am a forgiven one. And number four, and we're going to start moving towards the communion table this morning. Number four, make a move. Meaning, now do it. And it's not going to be easy. And we'll talk about why it's not easy just now. But... Before you think about you making your first move, I want you to think about the forgiving God who made the first move. He didn't wait for us to sort ourselves out before we went to Him. He entered our world and our brokenness. And He climbed on a cross for us. Think about the God who forgives, knowing we will sin again. Think about the God who pursues us and pursues us and is relentless of His forgiving us. 70 times 7 times 7 times 7. Think about that God. Think about the God who holds back his anger and holds back his wrath every time we sin against him. Think about the God who bore our cost. Matthew 26, 28. This is the Last Supper. Jesus is with his disciples and he says these famous words. Let's see how it pertains to your forgiveness. This is my blood of the covenants, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is that millions of dollars debt that Jesus paid on our behalf. Think about that. Start there. We're going to come to the communion table and we're going to invite all of you to come up. And please don't do this religiously, meaning eh, 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 just do it, drink, eat, go home. This is an opportunity for you to engage with the living God at the heart of our faith, the gospel. And we're talking about forgiveness. This is a moment for us to see grace, receive grace, be empowered by grace, to go forward and give grace. And I want you to do this. I want you to think first of God. When you come up and you take the grape juice, which is a picture of this blood which was shed for our forgiveness, when you take a piece of the bread, which is a picture of Jesus' body that was broken for you, think about the God who made the first move. Think about this millions of dollars debt. Think about how he paid for it. Think about what motivated that payment. That it was love that motivated him bearing the cost. And think about the cost, not to condemn you, but for you to understand while grace comes to you free, it came to God very costly. And then, 
Only then, once you've, and if you're battling to see this, God, help me see this. Open the eyes of my heart. And only then, this might take some time. Only then think about the offense against you. Think about this person or even people. And you might start feeling a physical pain in yourself because forgiveness is painful. Why? Because forgiveness means ultimately that the person who is doing the forgiving is the one who pays the cost. Timothy Keller again just writes so well on this. He says this, forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. Think about the bishop. Think about the thief. Think about Philemon. Think about Onesimus. Think about Jesus. Think about you. Now think about you and this other person. So you can reach out in love and to seek your enemy's renewal and change. Forgiveness means absorbing the debt of sin yourself. Everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death into resurrection and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. If you're going to become a forgiving one, because you're a forgiven one, walking into a place of forgiveness is going to mean carrying your own cross as you physically experience the pain of what this person has taken from you. Just to remind you, next week we're going to talk more about does this mean we've got to always become BFFs again or husband and wife in some cases. We'll talk about reconciliation next week. But regardless of the outcome, it's got to start with forgiveness. So let us pray. Father, I ask for grace. The way I understand things is that it is even only by grace, meaning only you can enable us to see the debt that you paid fully. Only you can open the eyes of my heart to fully comprehend that or to even begin partially comprehending that. God, overwhelm me with that debt. Overwhelm us with that debt. And then Overwhelm us with freedom as we look at the one who paid that debt. Overwhelm us with gratitude as we realize, man, we're not like that person who's going to go out and strangle our friend for 10 rand. Allow us to get grace. Show us Jesus, Holy Spirit. Make him clear to my mind and to my heart. Soften our hearts, break our hearts. And overwhelm us with love. And then, Lord, give us grace to make a move. Give us grace to make a move in these relationships. Give us grace to start with forgiveness. Give us grace to have the courage to have these conversations. Transform our hearts so that we can engage as we would a brother or a sister. And God, we trust you with supernatural workings in our relationships. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.